The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Everyone, welcome to a new episode of Sox Machine Live. I am Josh Nelson, alongside Jim Margulis on this very lovely evening in Chicago. Thursday night, June 22nd, 2023. The Chicago White Sox were off today. That might be a good thing. Uh, as they have now lost four series in a row in the month of June after their hot start to June where they were 5-1 and one, to start this really tough 26-game stretch. Uh, the White Sox are currently 9-9 nine and nine in the month, which, honestly, they go 500 in this 26-game stretch. That's pretty good for the White Sox standards in 2023, but it may not be good enough to persuade the White Sox front office and probably more importantly, White Sox ownership to buy at the trade deadline. We'll talk about what the White Sox should do prior to the trade deadline as we are just 31 games away from the trade deadline. So the clock is ticky for the White Sox clubhouse, the White Sox front office and the White Sox ownership and what direction they will take before the August 1st trade deadline. We'll also talk about Tim Anderson's unknown status as he missed a lot of time against the Texas Rangers. He only had one pitch hit appearance in this series. What does that mean for this upcoming weekend? And speaking of this upcoming weekend, the Boston Red Sox come to the south side to play the Chicago White Sox this weekend. We'll preview that series later in the show. But first, an update on a terrible hit-and-run accident that happened in this series outside of guarantee rate field four victims were involved in a hit and run crash as white Sox fans were crossing the street to attend the game against the texas rangers a 51 year old woman and three men ages 24 25 and 64. according to the chicago tribune who just recently put a update uh that one of the white Sox fans currently uh has suffered a traumatic head injury. So our thoughts are with those White Sox fans that have suffered significant injuries uh, just trying to cross the street and attend the game. They have apprehended the suspect, and there is a pretty hefty bail for that suspect right now. And once we have more updates, uh, we'll provide them. But we're definitely thinking about those four White Sox fans try to cross 35th just to get to the game and unfortunately involved in a hit and run accident uh, and, and best well wishes for those fans. And hopefully they come through and uh, we get more positive updates as it comes in. One thing that I have thought about as far as attending games, because Jim, you obviously you've been there crossing, mm-hmm. crossing 35th. It's a mob of people and to this day, the White Sox and at least the city of Chicago allow car traffic on game days all the way up to the first pitch to travel along that stretch of the road. I, I wonder moving forward if the alderman's office, because ultimately this decision is up to the city of Chicago, it, it, the White Sox can make a request. They could heavily influence the alderman's office, the 11th ward in Chicago to make some traffic updates, but 
with all of the updates at Wrigley Field and even all the security updates that the White Sox have installed outside Gary T. Ray Field, I just wonder if 35th will be closed to car traffic in the future. Seems like it could be, right? I'm trying to think of the ways I've approached guaranteed rate field. Like oftentimes, if I come in on 35th from uh, from the suburbs or from like the outside of the city uh, on the west uh, side, I'll come in and basically I'll park at one of the lots on the outside. If I come in on the Dan Ryan, I tend to go on 37th versus 35th. Like I, I don't uh, make a right on 35th. I keep going past the park because it seems like it's just a lot of people. And, you know, I'm fine walking, you know, parking further away and, and, and walking a few blocks. You know, if I take the you know, transportation or park by IAT, that sort of thing, like there are options around the park to where it seems like from my recollection, it's been a couple of years now since I've parked and walked uh, that 35th isn't necessary to just getting people, uh, at least most people in and out of like the bulk of the lots and the surrounding lots that are not necessarily affiliated with the White Sox, but are still useful for fans getting in and out. Yeah. And we talked about it in, in the stands uh, amongst the other season ticket holders. Like could the state of Illinois city of Chicago build a, a passenger or I should say a pedestrian bridge over 35th, if they're going to continue to allow traffic, that may look weird, but there, there's a better way of handling this. And, and, there's a way I, I think to avoid this type of tragedy where you, you have someone running, driving through a, a crowd and unfortunately four White Sox fans get uh, significantly injured in, in this particular accident. So that's just something that was on my mind throughout this series uh, for all, because a lot of White Sox fans, if they don't go through gate five, they're just trying to cross 35th. Even if they have suites, they have to go through gate four. Maybe they're meeting up with friends and family that have tailgate spots and those other parking lots are going to gate three or gate two or even to uh, the, the club section as well. Uh, yeah, just really unfortunate. It's something that I've been thinking about. I've been thinking about those fans. So hopefully everybody makes a quick recovery and uh, they're able to attend a game at, at guarantee rate field soon. And hopefully we do not have any more accidents like this for the rest of the 2023 season. Now, on the field for the Chicago White Sox, we, we knew this was going to be a tough series because the Texas Rangers have been playing very good baseball. They continue to lead the American League West. And in this particular series, just like a quick recap, because there's bigger items to talk about when it comes to the Chicago White Sox on the macro level. But quickly on the micro level, when we're looking at these three particular games, I, I think it was pretty obvious, Jim. The Texas Rangers have a really good offense and the White Sox just don't have the firepower to keep up with one of the best lineups in the American League. And it's just kind of continuation of what we saw in April where the White Sox faced the Rays. Like the bats are just not good enough to st to keep up with the top teams in the American League. It is a very deep lineup that the Rangers have. Uh, they were able, the White Sox were able to keep pace with the Rangers in the in game two. Uh, the bottom of the order, Zach Remillard and Elvis Andrews coming through to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the bottom of the order. And that was refreshing. It was nice to see like uh, a, a sector of the lineup that was not Luis Robert, was not Jake Berger or Eloy Jimenez coming through and setting up, you know, Luis Roberts come through or Eloy to come through. So that was really nice to see. And it's a reminder of like how the other half lives at times of just being able to have offense from anywhere. I think we, you know, that was the argument for signing Andrews based on the way he played last year was like, he's not going to be as good. He's not going to deliver that, you know, um, you know, 1000 OPS against lefties probably again in the, in the 25 Homer pace he was on with the white Sox, but he's probably going to be better than what they have and, and help energize the bottom of the order but then like you know first of all that didn't happen and then tim anderson at the top of the order uh wasn't doing anything either so basically like the whole idea of turning the lineup over to the middle of the orders never never took never caught fire and spend so many solo homers because of that so i think we're seeing you know with the rangers what that would look like if it actually came to fruition um the other thing just stuck out to me was Corey seager marcus Semyon. uh yeah. you know, the, the money spent on them and just what that money buys, which is just tough at bats. Um, you know, at least Luis Robert having a good season. Um, you know, one of the few things going right for the White Sox. And this might be 
maybe not his final form, but probably close to his final form in which he has games where he looks lost and then games where he looks unbeatable. And when you throw in the defense and the base running and such, like you take it overall, but money buys that kind of plate discipline, those tough at bats, the, Oh, you know, he's up again. You know, that, that kind of reaction that I don't know if a hitter on the white Sox generates from the other team, like Luis Robert, I think inspires some fear. Eloy um, generates some fear, but they can also be pitched to, they can also hit the ball on the ground. Um, they, they don't have, there are ways to beat them. If they make a mis- if you make a mistake against them, they'll punish it, hit the ball 450 feet. But you can also beat them. You can get two outs and one. You can strike them out. You can give them to chase. Like there are ways that, uh, you know, that you can just make them look ordinary. Whereas like Seeger, you can make them look ordinary too. It's baseball, but it's harder. And the plate discipline, like you have to buy plate discipline. It, it's mm-hmm. hard to generate it yourself. It's hard to make players who haven't had it get it. And so that's why it costs a lot when you get to free agency. And, and the White Sox just, they're trying to find ways around it. Uh, you know, what, whether it's like trying to just you know, capitalize on guys who have big strike zones, like Tim Anderson, Jose Bray, you can hit outside the strike zone. Eloy's another guy who can hit outside the strike zone. Or uh, cases of like trying to get plate discipline through the draft, like Andrew Vaughn and Gavin Sheets. Uh, Zach Collins before then, like they've tried uh, different ways to do it, but like the easiest way to do it is paying for it. And that's what, when I look at the Rangers, I look at that like, a lot of young talent, a lot of offense they've built themselves, but the guys who like are the toughest outs, they went and got. And uh, there's something to say for that. I think I said said it like six or seven times to our friend Janice Scurio, which you could see here on CHGO, our friend Beef Loaf, which you guys could watch their show starting at 8 o'clock p.m. Central Time at YouTube.com slash from the 108. I wish the White Sox had a Dallas Garcia. Man, I really enjoy watching Adalas Garcia play baseball, Jim, especially hitting-wise. Because, yeah, to your point, Marcus Sivian and Corey Seager, man, that's a dynamic duo. But when you got Nathaniel Lowe and you got Jota Heim behind the plate hitting like he has, and then you add someone like Adalas Garcia who just simply, it seems like he doesn't miss when there's runners on scoring position. Man, he would look great in the White Sox right field. <laughs> Yeah, I'm trying to think. Like he's he's another guy with the big strike zone, though, or he'll go outside and just like so. They have guys who are like that, but they also don't have like those guys they have are like that. Don't also play an above average right field as well. He draws right. some walks as well, but he also has like you know he he goes outside the zone to get RBIs. Like he's somebody who uh, I would say he's a little bit like Jose Abreu in the same way. Like Abreu. His plate discipline often wasn't as bad as it looked like he's somebody who could be pitched to, but like when he was locked in, he was somebody who, you know, wouldn't chase, but unless it was an RBI situation and could go outside, you know, a couple inches off the plate, a couple inches above the zone and either poke the ball to the right side, get enough of a distance, a fly ball to get a run home. But he kind of reminds me of the same, same skill set of just figuring out uh, if they're being careful and then adjusting for that by like, maybe just setting up, you know, giving up the inside corner and just being inclined to reach out on sliders away that are elevated and he can still get out to and, and get the outfield. Well, with the White Sox losing the series and the one game that they won has been a big topic. Mm-hmm. Everyone talking about baseball where catchers are being positioned. Sure enough, uh, the next day, San Diego and San Francisco have their own controversy with how the catcher is positioned when it comes to the rule, obviously the rules try to protect the catchers. It's also try to protect base runners as well, but I don't know if they need to draw something on the field where catchers have to be reminded that they have to be in front of home plate and stay clear of home plate until the throw is near them. Because I don't, I don't think Jonah Hive did anything wrong. Honestly, on uh, the play that he made at Elvis Andrews. What he was called out for is that he has a foot on home plate and he hasn't gotten the ball yet. And that is why the White Sox had that call reversed and the White Sox had Elvis Andrews scoring and that ends up being the game-winning run. Kendall Graybid saves the game and uh, the White Sox beat the Texas Rangers and Bruce Bochy and the Rangers are still furious about that particular call at home plate. 
I just don't know what Major League Baseball could do moving forward if they still want to continue having this rule other than maybe painting some additional lines on the field, Jim. Well, it's weird to me is like, I'm trying to think it's maybe comes up like once a year, if that, like over the past few years, it was a big deal in 2014 when it first came up and they were still fine tuning the rule and players are still building habits. But yeah, I really hadn't thought of it in years and the couple times where, you know, it comes up in a challenge and they don't find anything on the challenge, but it's more long lines of, Hey, maybe obstructed. And ultimately like they don't find anything. And then to have it like two days in a row, um, two, I guess you could say like, I would say the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. Like Jonah Heim broke the letter of the law. The way he applied the tag was not like, I'm going to shatter this guy's leg or I'm going to, um, you know, uh, risk life and limb myself to block the plate. Like he looked like he gave Andrews a plate when going through the replay. Like I didn't, I wasn't looking at obstruction at all. I was thinking like, did Andrews get his hand in? No, but it seems to me like with that one, it seemed like a habit. Most catchers had formed to stand to the first base side of home plates while waiting for the ball to come in and then moving on. Like he just, for some reason, put his left foot on the plate the whole time, which is standing idly on it. And I think most catchers have developed, either they've developed habits or because it came up in a play that was reviewed uh, just as much for safe out versus obstruction that we just don't know. Like, you know, something I'm paying attention to now, like where are catchers setting up? Do they, you know, do... 20% of the catchers stand on the plate when waiting for a throw from left field do uh, you know, half of them. Uh, was this just a weird one-off that the White Sox won the lottery of based on the chances of uh, uh, that catcher doing that and the play being so close that it just, uh, you know, one in 10 chance and a one in 10 chance, put them together. Like, wow, <laughs> you won. what are the odds? Uh, the San Diego one I thought was, you know, that's just a case of uh, I saw, I think it was Scott Miller, uh, national baseball writer saying like, you know, they have to do something about this is approaching a crisis. Like, is it like, it's been two times, you know, two days in a row, but also like, I haven't thought of it in years and it really hadn't yeah. come up in a way in years. So like, it, it does seem like, eh, give it a week. Uh, you know, also like, you know, a dry, put it on your uh, to-do list for the off season, the competition committee to better understand like, you know, what you can do and, and, and kind of bat some ideas around, but I'm not inclined to, or at least get ready for the postseason. Maybe you don't want one of these calls like make or breaking like a game six uh, in the eighth inning when you have like and this you know kind of people calls. are already making that argument to change yep. the rule. So maybe like start getting things in line for the postseason so that way like you can fine tune it. But I still don't think it's that big of a problem. I think there are cases that come up where you say like, oh yeah, maybe you need like a you know last forty five feet or something like that of just you know what are you doing for the runner there. But also like in the case of Heim, like it seemed like that's just a habit a catcher could form. I think most catchers have formed. He just slipped up. Well, it does remind me back at the series at Pittsburgh with Sebi Zavala and the collision that he had with O'Neill Cruz. Sebi Zavala played that right. He mm -hmm. was out in front of home plate. O'Neill Cruz just didn't know what he wanted to do at home plate. And his bad slide, unfortunately, caused that collision. And O'Neill Cruz has missed some significant time. It, based on reports for Pittsburgh, O'Neill Cruz is rehabbing, so it sounds like he could be joining the Pirates pretty soon, and they could really use O'Neill Cruz. So we've seen one type of collision, but Sebi Zavala played that right. He was not interfering at home plate. That's just a, a, a bad, just a bad collision, a bad slide from O'Neill Cruz. Here, what has happened this week? I, I'm with you. I, I don't think it's a crisis. It's just. This one particular ticky-tack rule, a safety rule, has come up, and uh, it has decided the outcome of two games uh, mm -hmm. this week. I'm sure it won't for the rest of the season, but something to re be mindful of, catchers. you got to have both feet in front of home plate before you get that ball. If you don't, they're going to call it on you in New York. So Yeah, I mean, I generally like the rule. I like what the rule has done to the uh, – you know, the athleticism at home plates, both with catchers, you know, being able to, uh, you know, have to have the coordination to catch the ball in front of home plates before lunging across, apply the tag and, and the more like artful slides runners are inspired to do because they can't just pull over the catcher. Like I like what it's done. So that's why, like, I think if you try to get rid of the roller, say like, it's done enough. I think you'll see it creep into where like runners will try to take out the catcher again, because like, if you can, you know, not that I'm saying they're looking to knock out like, you know, Adley Rutschman for uh, 
four months and give him concussion problems. But just like right. in the case of if it happens to Rutschman, just you have to do it all over again and say like, oh yeah, that's why we had the rule in the first place. So I think there needs to be something to uh, limit runners from launching themselves into catchers and catchers from like making themselves targets to run through. So I think there's, it's not going to go away, but I think, you know, as these rules get, um, you know, just fine tuned based on, you know, a case of like Andrews being able to establish his base running line, like 50 feet from home plates while Jaime is standing with the left, with his left foot, like waiting for the ball to arrive. Like that didn't seem like it would set the, target for Andres to slide in that quickly because you know who knows ball hits the mound like all of a sudden the catcher might be you know in a different spot than he was even if he was off the plate so you know you can't say that Andres already determined his line based on where Heim was standing but yeah I'm, I'm a fan of the rule overall just because I think it's done a lot for the athleticism you know even the play at the plate like you know before the rule Heim could have just dropped his body in front of Andrews coming in and, you know, broken a hand, uh, sprained a wrist, and it would have been bad. But in the case of how it happened, it was just a, it was a great baseball play, like good send. Uh, Andrews looked like he cut the base okay, uh, rounding it, and great throw on target, good catch and tag, uh, perfectly executed to get Andrews by an inch. Like that was, that's the kind of play that I think, you know, was great as a baseball fan to watch on both sides and to have it. You know, I, I think that's what makes people so mad is like, it was already a great baseball player. Like, and Heim didn't do anything uh, to try to hurt Andrews uh, the way he might've eight years ago before the rule was, you know, or I should say like nine years ago before the rule was like necessary. So that's why I think it's going to be around and this just gives an excuse to, or, or reason maybe before the postseason to uh, just say like, all right, let's, Let's make it so that, you know, what made fans upset about this? How can we reduce the amount of leeway we give up or what can do to increase the leeway that we give umpires, what we give New York to make sure that like a play that's sound in terms of health wise, baseball wise, et cetera, uh, does, you know, goes unpunished or at least they can look the other way. The other thing I think of is like, you know, if these rules are firmly written, it's like with with uh, gambling and with so much money riding on outcomes is like, well, you can't really do things subject to interpretation. You can't say like, Oh, you're okay. You can't like let them off with a uh, warning and say, you know, it, it has to be called by the letter. If this is indeed the letter of the law. So that's what makes it tricky too, about just, uh, you know, neighborhood play is gone. You can't say like, Oh, he's close enough to the bag. Same thing with popping over the base. When you slide, like these rules that feel like, you know, uh, a little bit ruined. It's like part of it's, you know, if you have a hundred dollars riding on the game and they say like, ah, he, he did it well enough, even though he violated a rule, like we know what he's trying to do. Like I, I, that's something that jumps out to me. Just thinking about like, uh, that really can't be allowed anymore based on just the integrity of the competition based on all the money riding on it. Now the NFL doesn't know what a catch is. So yeah. baseball doesn't have that problem. So I, I understand where you're coming from, but other sports have a much bigger issue. So that's the Rager series. Let's so let's zoom out here and let's take a look at the macro for the White Sox. And this is the updated standings in the American League Central as of June 22nd, 2023. The Minnesota Twins recover. They lost the first two games of a four-game series against the Boston Red Sox. They ended up splitting that series against the Red Sox, so they've won their last two games. So the Minnesota Twins are back to 500. They're 38 and 38. The Cleveland Guardians are 36 and 38. They're one game back of the Minnesota Twins. The Guardians have won four straight games. It helps to face the Oakland Athletics uh, as they just got done with that home series against the A's. The Detroit Tigers, not dead yet. We thought they were going to be dead with the injuries that they have been going through. They're 32 and 41. They're four and a half games back. They have won six of their last 10 games. There's the White Sox at 32 and 44. They're now six games back. They're a game and a half back at Detroit. And the White Sox have lost seven of their last 10 games. And the Kansas City Royals are already planning to have a top three pick in the 2024 Major League Baseball draft. They are currently 20 and 54. But we also had Rick Hahn speak on Monday before the game. And this is the quote that caught my attention. Rick Hahn says a lot. But... He said on Monday, quote, making the playoffs is important, but the goals are loftier than that. When we judge ultimately what happens as we get much closer to August 1st than we are now, 
how we project our ability to not only win a division, but to make it impact in October is going to factor in. All right, Jim. So I find the quote interesting mm-hmm. because it seems like the White Sox have not moved the field goal posts for the 2023 season. They're not readjusting their goals, especially what happened in the month of April. And the fact that they're still 12 games below 500, they're thinking is at the deadline, making the playoffs would be great. But if we can't win any playoff series, well, that's going to ultimately decide in which direction we go before the trade deadline. Are you surprised the White Sox are not moving the field goal posts? Yes and no. Uh, I am surprised that they would be so blase about not winning a division that's this bad. Like, if you can't win this version of the AL Central, what are you even doing? Like, you know, what what's your credibility as somebody to make future baseball moves for a an organization? Like, you know, so I'm surprised they aren't chasing that a little bit harder because I think it's as much as this team indulges everybody's most nihilistic tendencies to be like, eh, just, I hope they lose every game the rest of the season. I hope that, you know, just, I don't want to care anymore. Please release me uh, from, from this, from this hell. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Like that's how it, you know, that's how it's been. And, you know, they've been between like four and six games back uh, this entire time because it, you know, neither the twins nor the guardians are going to run away with it anytime soon. It's uh to me, it seems like as long as they're within striking distance, they may as well try for it because like, it's still better to win the division than not. Even if like you win it with like a 79 and 83 record, like that's still better. Like, yeah, it's no prize to say you won it, but it is pretty damning to say you lost it. I think when it comes to just uh, the quality of the competition or the white Sox were supposed to be when they were building this, I do think it's, you know, I would say if a new general manager came in and said, like, oh, we're not going to chase this, you know, we're not going to throw good money after bad for something when we don't think this team is, you know, maybe they win the division title this year, but they're going to fall apart in 2024. We've seen White Sox teams do that 2012 to 2013, uh, you know, 2006 to 2007. Like we've seen uh, teams just uh, run out of gas. I think 2000 to 2001, too, is another one where just, you could kind of look at the way the team was falling apart the previous year and say like, oh, this is going to be really hard to keep this together and to keep this, you know, a, a viable postseason candidate. Right. So if a new front office came in, like I would be okay with them saying like, yeah, there's a lot of work to do that work might have not, or that work might have to start now. Like, okay, I get it. But with these guys, like, why would we trust them again? to say like to, to make these long-term moves and to get away with like from a postseason uh, opportunity that's still within reach when who knows, like they might have to punt again and nobody's going to care if they punt again. Like that's just uh, everybody's excited about the rebuild the last time, or at least most people were because like, Hey, we never seen this before prospects they've gotten back are interesting. Like I'm, you know, maybe I won't go to many games in 2017, but at least I'm going to be following how this, how this looks, how this works. Like if they do it again and there really isn't much to do it with this time around, but if they did it again, like everybody's been fooled once. So there, there's really no reason to just, you know, buy into it. So that's why, like, I can't see the argument. I don't understand why Rick Hahn keeps to get making this argument. I'm sure many of you had this debate with significant others and friends about how fashionable cargo shorts are. As someone who has fought these battles and has been willing to die on the hill about the benefits of cargo shorts, I found a new light. In my attempts to get into more shape, I've lost a couple of pants short sizes, so it was time for a new wardrobe fix, and I discovered an apparel company called Bird Dogs. They make a wide range of gear, but they get high marks for their shorts. After receiving a pair, I understand the hype. Bird Dog's stretch khaki shorts have a slimmer fit, so it's more in line with today's fashion trends. It gives legs a sculpted look, but it's still a great fit around the waist, so I don't feel constricted. That's because Bird Dog shorts are not made with stiff, restricted cotton. Bird Dog's invented a cloud-knit fabric that looks just like khaki, but it stretches to get you a way slimmer fit without having to sacrifice movement, which is key for me. I want to look fashionable, 
but in a practical way. It's going to get hot in Chicago, I promise you. And if you are like me, wanting to up your shorts game, check out Bird Dogs. Right now, they're running a special. When you make your order at birddogs.com, use promo code POOL at checkout to receive a free Yeti-style tumbler. Again, the URL is birddogs.com pool. Use promo code POOL at checkout for that gift. One reason why I hate buying tickets to anything these days is the waiting room. You know that feeling. You get the pre-sale code, and even if you got the pre-sale code and you log in, you're stuck in the waiting room with thousands of other people, not even sure if you're going to get a chance to buy tickets. Buying tickets to any event shouldn't be stressful, and that's why I've switched and used Game Time. It's the fast and easy way to buy tickets for all the sports, music, comedy, and theater shows near you. I use it to buy concert and theater tickets now for Chicago events. You could use it. It's also great for Major League Baseball games as well. They have some killer deals, especially when it comes to White Sox tickets, as Game Time is the place for last-minute ticket deals. Forget planning months in advance. Game Time has deals on tickets right up to the day of the event, and you can get exclusive flash deals on tickets for the baseball games or any of the comedy and theater shows that'll be happening all summer long in Chicago. And what I really like about Game Time is that they have the Game Time guarantee, which means you'll always get the best price. If you find tickets in the same section and row for less, Game Time will credit you 110% of the difference. That's why it's one of the fastest growing ticketing apps in the country for a reason. So snag the tickets without stress with Game Time. Download the Game Time app on your phone, either for Apple or Android devices, create an account, and use promo code SOCKSMACHINE for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account on Game Time and redeem code SOCKSMACHINE for $20 off. Download game time today. Last minute tickets, lowest price, guaranteed. Yeah, that's a good point, Jim. And I, I think at this moment, wouldn't it be like a minor miracle for the White Sox to come back and win this division? Oh, it would. But even then, like, they won it. <laughs> <laughs> right. I Yeah. That that's why I'm I'm surprised that the White Sox are not shifting the goalposts. Like, shifting the goals. Like, come on. Like, read the room. Somebody actually go on the internet in this team and go to MLB.com <laughs> slash standings and look where you are. Like, you're 12 games below 500. You're six games back of first place. I don't recall a team in my lifetime. Keyword, my lifetime. I was born in November of 1984. Okay. So the first White Sox season in my lifetime is 1985. I was not alive for the 1983 White Sox, okay? I'm 38 years old. So in my lifetime, I've never seen a White Sox team make up this type of ground and make the postseason th this late into the season. Typically, they're the ones that are out ahead and other yeah. teams are, are catching them uh, in the standings. So while it's one thing to say, well, six games is not a lot, in White Sox history it is, uh, mm -hmm. They just, for X, Y, Z reason, they've just never been able to make up this type of ground. And, and what adds into my aggravation watching this White Sox team and what we've seen the last couple of weeks, we've seen a run from the Miami Marlins. That is a team that has Luis Arise and Jorge Soler hitting the ball very well and an excellent pitching staff, but their best pitcher has a five ERA. Yet, they've gone on a run. And they're second place in the National League East. I don't think the San Francisco Giants are much better than the Chicago White Sox. And the Giants have gone on a run. And they're very competitive in the National League West. Shoot, the Cincinnati Reds, I think, have won 11 straight games. And I know they called up some prospects. And they're very highly touted prospects. But the White Sox have had prospects on that type of level as well. And they haven't hit the ground running like the Reds have had. Uh, and the Reds have now thrust themselves back into the conversation of winning the National League Central. Like, I know it takes a great deal of skill to put together a winning streak, but it also requires a great deal of luck. And I, I'm just, like, wondering why the White Sox can't do that. Because that's what they need. Like, mm -hmm. the White Sox at this stage need a 10-game winning streak. And unfortunately, a 10-game winning streak doesn't even get them to 500, which is sad. <laughs> Yeah, But it, it at least convinces me that they can put themselves into striking distance 
to take the lead in the American League Central. Right now, even though they're six games back, I wouldn't even say that they're within striking distance. So that's why with Rick Hahn's comments, it's not off-putting. But man, it's like, if that's the bar, Rick, I could tell you right now on June 22nd, you ain't hitting that bar. Mm -hmm. All right? Just be... At this moment, just be content, maybe not happy, but content as a White Sox fan if this team somehow stumbles into a division championship in 2023. We know they are going to get railroaded in the postseason, and if they win the division, that will be at home where they'll probably lose two straight games because the offense will disappoint us. Uh, the pitching may be able to hold on their, on their own, but the I don't think the White Sox offense is good enough uh, to win a playoff series. Like that, that would be impressive if they could come back and win the American League Central. But if, if that's the goal that Rick Hahn has in mind, that they have to meet, and that's what's going to be the deciding factor on August first of the trade deadline. Well, Rick, I I can tell you this: the decision's already been made, man. You, I know you're not going to go out and say it, but I'm hoping behind the scenes, Jim, the White Sox are starting to get organized and start ready to make their next move, even though. They probably don't deserve to make that next move, mm -hmm. to your point. But someone in this organization has got to keep moving forward because if you don't do anything, uh, I, certainly that is a, a decision. That is a choice that you can make. But, boy, that doesn't set up 2024 to be in a good spot. Yeah, I mean, it, I think that's just where my – I think I've said that they're going to stand pat, not because they want to, but because they have nothing to trade. <laughs> they don't have anything to like the, the selling is not that uh, appealing. Buying is not that, you know, they would love to buy. They just have nothing to buy with. So it's just, uh, they're, they're out of money. Their, their pockets are inside out, the little moths flying away from them. So I just look at it in terms of like standing pat is not saying it's good enough, just more along the lines of just, oh, well, dance with who we have, watch payroll melt off the books and go from there because like selling is not, we're going to get like four Ryan Cordells out of this, you know, group of that they have deal with on expiring contracts. Like that's, that's where I, I get a little bit, um, you know, I guess disenchanted with the idea of turning a, a to a new chapter is like, they just don't have much to do that with. So yeah, I, I get both sides of it. I just, uh, man, it's, they've been here for so long and have accomplished so little that there's no reason to really uh, expect anything. Yeah. I put this poll on Twitter and what Jim just mentioned was the most popular response on Twitter in the replies. But the poll was, what do you think the White Sox front office should do before the trade deadline? I did enjoy the replies of everyone submitting uh resign <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, i agree with you they won't uh they they, they like their money they're not going to resign uh but out of the options of buy stay the course or sell sell was overwhelmingly the favorite here 76.4 percent of the poll say the white Sox should sell almost 13 percent believe the white Sox should buy and about 11 percent say stay the course to your point jim i think Staying the course is probably what the White Sox will do at the trade deadline. I don't think that's the right decision because mm -hmm. I'm I'm a firm believer every team at the trade deadline, you're either getting busy living or you're getting busy dying. Okay, that that's what you're doing. You're either buying or you're selling. Like I don't see the purpose of staying pat. But there's just so much unknown here with the White Sox organization. And, you know, even at that same press conference, you know, Rick Hahn called out John Heyman because John Heyman went on 670 to score and was speculating that Pedro Gafal could be one and done with the White Sox. And, of course, Rick Hahn's going to defend his hire because, obviously, this yeah. is his guy. He made the hire. He's not going to start backtracking now. Yeah. Uh, he's not going to do that. He's not going to throw his guy in the line of fire because if he starts doing that, then everyone's going to turn around and be like, you hired him. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't like, think he's he going to do that. He could have just said nothing though. Like I, I listened to it because I would have listened to it if Rick Hahn didn't mention it. Uh, he, you know, so the Streisand effect was in play, but you know, Mike Mulligan, prefacing the question said like, you know, can he be one and done? And Heyman's response is, yeah, I could see him being one and done. And you know, then uh, Han, you know, turns his sights on Heyman, just like he was just answering the question presented to him. So it's, 
that was the other dumb thing about it was like one you brought it up when few people would have paid attention to or given much credence and then the other one is just like yeah you're misrepresenting it on top of that so uh yeah i I normally don't feel a whole lot of sympathy for john Heyman. like i i more or less read his reports of the shrug because he seems like well sourced with a few agents but like not necessarily with what the white Sox are thinking like bob nightingale is who i trust more for like what the white Sox are thinking what they're going to do like Heyman, like Maybe he gets lucky based on like an interaction with an agent, but otherwise, like I'm not inclined to think he knows anything that uh, Nightingale hasn't already said. So that's why I just I, I didn't get that whole interaction itself, aside from like maybe wanting to send a message to you know other reporters who are might be turning up the heat on the White Sox because they're a huge disappointment. So on the buy, sell, stay and put, you mentioned Bob Nightingale. So let's bring that point up real quick here, Jim. Uh, Bob mm-hmm. Nightingale, in his last column this previous Sunday, uh, wrote that a couple of the White Sox veterans would welcome a trade if offered. Speculating, there are some White Sox players that have spoken to Bob Nightingale before the season. Uh, and I think you, you mentioned them in a recent column on Sox Machine, Joe Kelly Lancelin. I made sure uh, to tell Rick Hahn it was speculation. Yeah, speculating. We're speculating. <laughs> uh, Bob's reporting it that some guys in your clubhouse are ready to get traded, Rick. Uh, we're just speculating that a couple of those guys are guys that are Tony guys and Joe Kelly and Lance Lynn. Does that play a factor into this as well as far as the decision making? Or do you think the White Sox front office, which in the past has done a very good job of ignoring players wants and needs mm-hmm. uh that they would I- ignore veterans who maybe come knocking at the door at the all-star break if they just don't improve and say hey man i i don't have many years left so if a team comes calling wanting me I-, I would love for one more shot to compete to go into the postseason like do you think that could influence rick Hahn's feeling and thinking about how he handles this trade deadline Maybe a little, like, especially since he's already said that, you know, we're not going to let uh, being within striking distance of a terrible decision uh, dictate what we do if we have a chance to solidify a roster for 2024 and 2025 and what have you. So I think him having said that makes me think like, you know, if the White Sox are five and a half games out coming at the end of July and somebody makes a good offer for Kendall Graveman and Kendall Graveman has said that, uh, hey, you know, if or Kendall Graven's agent has said, like, we're interested in having October possibilities for him or Joe Kelly, since he's going to be a free agent, possibly the, after the year. Like, we would like a showcase for our guy that he says, yeah, may as well. Like, just, I'm not feeling it's like, makes me feel better for doing it. Makes me maybe get on the phone and call a couple more teams to try to leverage this, you know, offer against what other teams want for this guy. Like, can see it inspiring him a little bit, but, yeah, ultimately not being the thing that changes a course that the White Sox are going to choose more or less reinforces their decision and, and uh, allows them to say nice things about a guy after they deal him. But it, it was funny. Like I was, I got a question in a PO Sox mailbag uh, that I just posted today and it's exclusive to Patreon members. So uh, sign up at patreon.com slash socks machine, but uh, asking about Dane Dunning and, and Marcus Semien, the seasons they're having, or in Semien's case, the career he's had, and say, like, are the White Sox bad at player development? And, you know, my answer was yes, but, like, trying to look at the trades and seeing, like, if Rick Hans won any trades, like, the trades he's made have been all forced by roster pressures, like, out of options, uh, you know, too many guys for one spot, another player uh, out of options. Like Zach, you know, like Reese McGuire is kind of like summing up Rick Hahn's attitude towards trades. Like they got him because Toronto had to deal him and they traded him because they had to trade him because they were going to have three catchers or they had to risk losing Sebi Zavala. So they traded Reese McGuire. Uh, they won the first mm-hmm. trade, lost the second trade, but just like those trades were forced on Rick Hahn by roster pressures and roster limits. And those seem to be the only trades he makes. So um, that's what I'm watching going into this deadline is like, will he actually make a trade? Because like, you know, we saw last year that he just kind of shook his head and said, I'm as disappointed as anybody for uh, what I did or what I didn't do. And now he kind of has to make trades. Like if they are falling off, like if they are like six plus games back at the deadline, they have to say like, yeah, Lucas Gilito, like 
thanks for everything you did. Mm-hmm. You know, what can we get for Kendall Graveman? What can we get for Joe Kelly? What are people asking for Dylan Cease? Like they have to go to that level. I think Luis Roberts still a little bit deep. Luis Roberts, the one guy I think who can actually bridge one roster to another. Uh, Dylan Cease, I think will be gone if the White Sox try like a controlled teardown of their current roster is like Dylan Cease will probably be gone by the time that comes to fruition. Luis Robert, in terms of just what he offers and what, how long his contract is, is somebody who can actually be part of this core and part of the next core. So that's why like, you know, Dylan Cease, I'd even listen to those offers or ask around, you know, be the one asking, you know, Hey, you need a starter. You need like a postseason starter, Dylan Cease. You interested? Uh, like I would be making calls for Dylan Cease if they are in that route. Uh, but Will he? Because he hasn't really shown the ability. Well, one, uh, teams aren't that interested in what the White Sox have. And also, like, he has also been a little gun shy. I don't know if it's like a, when you have both Fernando Tatis and Marcus Semien on your trade record from, like, trying to force action when action, like, maybe isn't the prudent course. Like, uh, yeah, maybe that makes anybody shy. It just most general managers would have been relieved of their duties by the right. time it was time to be, you know, have to be decisive again. Well, I mean, this is where I bring up the point, like, where's Kenny? Like, you're the boss, Kenny. Like, if your guy, Rick, doesn't feel comfortable doing this, I, I'm sorry, you're going to have to work. You're going to have to do something because <laughs> you have not been doing anything for many, many years. And, and to your point, like, there are four, and they're all pitchers for the White Sox that I think other teams will be interested. The two starters, Lucas Giolito, and Lance Lynn, if you buy into what happened in Seattle, I mentioned Lance Lynn because he's got a $1 million buyout and it is an $18 million contract next year. There's no way the White Sox are going to be picking up that option. So either you're moving Lance Lynn before the trade deadline or you're paying him a million dollars 10 days after the season and he's going to be a free agent. We all know the White Sox have found other ways to save money <laughs> via trades Bonus trading pool. international draft money just to save mm-hmm. out buyouts of like Nate Jones, for example. Uh, so that's why I could see Lance Lynn getting traded. I don't expect the White Sox to get much for someone like Lance Lynn. Lucas Giolito, you can maybe drive up a bidding war for uh, as teams are always looking for starting pitching. There's not going to be a lot of quality starting pitching this trade deadline and Kendall Graven and Joe Kelly, Sure, I could buy into that they're not going to bring, you know, shiny prospects into the White Sox farm system. But I do think those are guys that can be moved. You move those four, this White Sox team gets bad in a hurry, especially in the run prevention side. But that's why I brought up the point, like, you're either getting busy living and trying to make the postseason, or you're getting busy dying. Like, if you're going to be bad, be bad and nosedive in August and September to help improve your MLB draft lottery odds so that you could get more draft pool money for the 2024 Major League Baseball draft that you could spend on prospects, whomever is making that decision-making for the White Sox next year. I just, I think the White Sox, me personally, at this moment, I would start sending scouts up to other organizations. I would start getting phone calls, feelers to see which teams are interested for those four pitchers, direct scouts to start watching prospects in a ball and double legs. That's probably where you're going to have to live in order for these types of trades for these four pitchers and start doing the work now and try to get that Intel. So you are well prepared to make moves at the end of July if things get really bad. But ultimately, even though I think the White Sox should sell, the White Sox rarely do what I have asked them to do over the 10 years that we podcast. So I'm with you, Jim. I think ultimately they're going to stand pat. And on August 2nd, we're just all going to look at each other and be like, all right, so what's the what's the hope here? That in September, because there's more division games for the White Sox, so they make one last run for the division and we try to give ourselves false hope that maybe they could run down and catch the Minnesota twins or the Cleveland guardians is, is that what we're trying to hold out hope for as white Sox fans in 2023? Will, will anyone be with us, Jim, 
looking forward <laughs> to that, or is everybody going to be paying attention to what Justin Fields and the Chicago Bears are doing at that stage? Probably that. Um, the only defense I can see for standing Pat is like if they want to turn over the roster for a new general manager, like, or I shouldn't say turn over, but hand it off to a new general manager. Say like, we didn't feel comfortable uh, with the offers we got. I don't trust Rick Hahn to cash in on Kendall Graveman's value. Let's like wait till the off season to try to deal him. But, but what do you who feel about like the White Sox organization to your point, Jim? Yeah. Who in the White Sox organization is saying that? Is yeah, that nobody, Jerry yeah. Reinsdorf? Is that Kenny Williams? No, I mean, like, I, I don't think ex- no one's yeah. saying that. Oh, no, I, I'm not saying anybody's saying it. It's just like I could see standing Pat being a good call if they were ready to move on. Like, that's what I'm saying is okay. like if they were like going to see like what's James Click up to uh, come October and hire somebody like him, uh, then I could see a case of just I'm, we're not crazy about the offers. We're not crazy about Rick Hahn's judgment of these offers. We're going to hold on and wait for like our next GM to have a full complement of players. You know, also guys like Andrew Vaughn, Eloy Jimenez, Dylan Cease, like, does he want to deal them? Does he want to try to reshape the roster using them? Like, have everybody available for this next GM. But yeah, if it's just like Rick Hahn going into another offseason of trying to make deals, like, that's, that's, I think, the most depressing outcome of this is, like, do nothing. And then, like, you have the guy who keeps doing nothing being expected to do something again when you have, like, three rotation spots they'll need a dressing if Lance Lynn doesn't come mm-hmm. back. Like it's, it's, it's going to be a lot of work. And, you know, to your point about Kenny Williams, like, you know, he hasn't done a lot of work. Rick Hahn hasn't done a lot of work. They feel, you know, that's one thing I, I talked about in the PO Sox mailbag was like, if they got Bryce Harper and they signed him for 13 years and he were taking $30 million of payroll up and the White Sox, you know, as Kenny threatened, like, we're going to have to, peel off pieces of this core you like in order to pay Bryce Harper. Like, sure, maybe, but also like that does get them thinking about like, who can we trade for more players to help supplement some positions of need? Like it does make them work a little more versus like extending uh, Robert and Jimenez and Moncada along with Anderson, who's already extended and say like, all right, we did our work. We can take the next four years off because this right. is going to be your core doing everything. Like I wonder if the Bryce, Har- you yeah, know, signing a Bryce Harper or Manny Machado or what have you would have made them work a little harder to make sure that they weren't susceptible. Like, Oh, we have five of the same players and our injury prone players remain injury prone and we keep falling into the same hole all over again. And we don't know what to do because we haven't really been working. Yeah. Yeah. Now again, disclaimer, we are speculating that the white Sox front office, their main people, Rick Hahn, Kenny Williams are not working all that hard. Uh, we're judging by the results, speculating from the results. Yeah. Speculating from the results and also speculating that an 87 year old man, Jerry Reinsdorf is not the one leading the way for the decision-making in baseball ops. My assumption is that it's Rick Hahn, Kenny Williams, quiet quitting. And if you ask about the status of their current jobs, they all point to the 87-year-old man, Jerry Reinsdorf, and that's his final decision. So again, who's who's in charge of the Chicago White Sox? Nobody's got a clue. I don't even think the White Sox have a clue on who is actually in charge, which makes makes things uh, very muddy. But again, I mean, that's the current situation for the Chicago White Sox. It's a big reason why they're 32 and 44, six games back. And again, you're 31 games away from the trade deadline. And if the White Sox are going to be at 500 before August 1st of the trade deadline, which the White Sox have an off day, uh, let's see, 31 games, they got to go 12 above 500, what, 22 and nine? They got to go? In the next 31? Yeah, uh, I mean, with the schedule, I think you can revise it down a little bit. If they went like, what, 17 and, let's see, 22 and 9, so 17 and 14, like, that'd be pretty good against the schedule. But it depends on, like, how they look. I mean, like, with the offense scoring, like, you know, t- struggling to score more than four runs in a game, like, yeah, it's that's not going to do it, so... Yeah. Yeah. 22 and nine would be the dream, but I think like, yeah, if they won 18 games, like that would be pretty good for the schedule they're playing. But uh, yeah, they, they have a strength, which is a deep pitching staff, but offenses can wear out a deep pitching staff if you don't have enough runs to score. And we keep seeing that year in and year out and then they just keep adding relievers. So that's where we're at. 
That's where we're at. So we move forward for the Chicago White Sox. They have another series this weekend after the Boston Red Sox split against the Minnesota Twins. Now the Red Sox visit the Chicago White Sox. And your pitching probables for this series. Friday night at 7.10 p.m. Central Time, Lucas Giolito will take the mound. Saturday at 3.10 p.m. Central Time will be Lance Lynn. And and on Sunday at 1.10, it's to be announced. Tuki, Tuki Tuason, who the White Sox acquired on waivers from the Cleveland Guardians. Uh, He looked pretty good on Wednesday night against the Texas Rangers, uh, pitching four scoreless innings uh, against the Rangers. And when you time it up, maybe he can be the opener on on Sunday if you're hoping that he can go three or four innings. Uh, But that looks to be a bullpen day. And then the White Sox go on the road and they go back out west for four games against the Angels and three games against the Oakland Athletics. Uh, so without having Mike Clevenger around uh, or another dependable starting pitcher, uh, this could be a tricky situation for Pedro Grafal. So we'll see on how he handles Sunday uh, against the Boston Red Sox. And uh, the Red Sox are currently last place in the American League Central, uh, American League East, I should say. But if they were in the American League Central, they'd be in first place. Running away with it. Running away with it. <laughs> the one question that I have for this weekend. Mm-hmm is about Tim Anderson and his unknown status of this week. Very weird that he doesn't play the finale on Sunday against Seattle. He only gets one pinch hit opportunity, which of course he grounds out, but that's his only plate appearance against the Rangers. So he resets the whole injured list retroactive timetable. And there's not a lot of clarity if he's going to be able to play this weekend. It's his birthday, by the way, on Friday. Uh, so I'm, I'm expecting him to play on his birthday, but it's unknown, Jim. And again, the White Sox are they're getting weird again. The White Sox are getting weird with these injuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. Ricotta is alive, but will he ever play baseball again? Who knows? <laughs> But Tim Anderson, yeah. like, what, what do you make of this whole unknown status uh, from Pedro Grafal? Like, there's not a lot of clarity on what's going on with him. To me, based on the way Pedro Grafal has tried to be very deferential of Anderson's status by not removing him from the leadoff spot and being very uh, adamant that he's going to remain in the leadoff spot, then all of a sudden he's batting second. Like, that, you know, he is until last moment, he was firmly behind Tim Anderson. And based on the timing, like him being pulled like an inning after that base running mistake where he didn't really, you know, it was hit and run or it was, it was running hit, didn't locate the ball, pop up on you know, first base, you know, foul ball side of first base. And he really didn't make a strong effort to get back to first. And it was a day after he made that really bad throwing error, uh, unnecessary throw. And that, that went in the stands like, to me, like if this were him taking a mental break or the White Sox giving him one, I think this is what it would look like by saying like, yeah, he's got a shoulder thing. And then being, you know, very, um, yeah, providing Jose Rodriguez as additional depth in case somebody needs to play shortstop, just taking him out of the mix a little bit without putting him on the injured list and making him wholly unavailable and you know wanting to pitch hit with them because like, we know we're not putting him on the injured list. So we don't have to worry about retroactive status. And plus with the uh, not playing the finale and then having the day off, like they can just reset the retroactive thing. It's only three days at most. So that's no longer a, you know, a deal breaker, like uh, a self-inflicted wound, that self-inflicted wound is healed. Now, um, to me, it looks like a mental break. Uh, speculation, once again, disclaimer, speculation. Disclaimer. But I don't know, you know, I'm trying to think how else that would look like if they're trying to be like not wanting to invite um, questions about his, you know, just general status, his his well-being. Like I can say like, yeah, it's a shoulder thing. Shoulder thing's healed, he's back in the lineup versus like something more nebulous in terms of like his head's not in the right space right now. You don't want to invite, um, you know, scrutiny on his off field stuff, which he did talk about on a podcast or a YouTube show. Like, you know, he has talked about a little bit, um, but like, you don't want to, as a manager, invite speculation on that and people to like open up. So if I were trying to give him a mental break uh, without like lying about a shoulder thing or like an injury that uh, is, is, you know, maybe not there. Like, I think this is what what it would look like. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I, 
I could see that. I, I could see, again, disclaimer, your speculation, Jim, being on point here. It's really going to be odd in on Friday when we get the lineups tweeted out from the White Sox main social media accounts. He's not in the lineup. Like, then I think the questions need to be more zeroed in on what is going on with Tim Anderson because it's not so much of his availability, but why do you continue to play a man down? Yeah. It is bizarre. And what's even more bizarre is Pedro Grafal's comments about Jose Rodriguez. Listen, White Sox, there is no point in you calling up your 22-year-old double-A prospect if you're not going to give them a start here or there. Like, if he's just going to be a guy that just sits on the bench and pinch runs for Yasmani Grandal, dude, you could call up Yobert Sanchez or Eric Gonzalez. Like, if Jose Rodriguez, if you believe, is going to be part of a near-future White Sox core or be one of your starting middle infielders in 2024 or 2025, this is a great time to see if he could do it or what he can do. I mean, you gave that opportunity to Lenin Sosa last year. I mm-hmm. just, I'm not, Zach Revillard, the fact that he's looking to bunt should tell you everything you need to know yeah. about his ability to hit, okay? Like, yes, he had that wonderful game and we'll always remember the Zach Remillard game and thank you to Zach for winning that game for the White Sox. But man, if all he's looking to do is just to survive and put the ball in play, and that means just laying down bunts, I'd rather see the 22 year old kid get an opportunity, get a shot here, at least a start this weekend. If Jose Rodriguez doesn't get a start this weekend, then I, I just don't understand what the White Sox are doing. Again, they could have called somebody else up to do this and Rodriguez could still be getting valuable player development valuable plate appearances down in Birmingham. Yeah. I mean, like I get it for a short term, just because like, if you call up Eric Gonzalez and send him down, you have to outright him um, and, and risk losing him to another team. And then that throws off your depth. So I, I think if this is like a glorified promotion to Charlotte for Rodriguez, that's fine. But yeah, the idea of playing a man short and it's one thing if Rodriguez is there for four days, I, I agree with you in terms of like, if you're going to give him the experience, like throw him in a game, give him some at bats, just, Give him a taste of it. Get him on a, uh, give him a baseball reference page for his major league stats and say like, yeah, I guess he technically has one because he appeared in a game, but just you know, give him, give him a moment. You know, give him a baseball to take home uh, if he gets that first hit or first RBI. Yeah. Like, like I agree with you there, but like I'm not as opposed to the idea of calling up Rodriguez just to you know save yourself a roster spot or like uh, risk of calling a guy up, adding him to the roster, and then having to outright him and hope you keep him if you really want him around for depth purposes. Like, it's – you can get by without Eric Gonzalez, but I can understand, like, the extra paperwork involved. And, like, hey, it's a per D, it's neat per diem for Rodriguez. Like, Darn, they're going to have to work. That yeah. sucks for the White Sox front yeah. office. Well, like, ultimately it benefits Rodriguez to be around for a few days. But, yeah, I'm, I'm more along the lines of, like, playing a man short and calling up a guy that they don't want to use. That's what I think is is more irksome to me. So, yeah, if he plays on Friday, then I'll think like, yeah, it's, you know, a mental break. Uh, Rodriguez is there for insurance. I get it. Rodriguez is now in Charlotte. Okay. But, yeah, if this keeps going on and Rodriguez doesn't play, then you're back to having a disconnect between the manager and the front office and the training staff in terms of, like, who can actually play? Who do you trust to give it bats to? Uh, and, and you know, why are we playing with a 23-man roster when we could use like 28 or 29 just to get every possible matchup advantage that, uh, you know, Griffal can use? Yup. Yup. Well said, Jim. And that will conclude this episode of Sox Machine Live. I really appreciate everybody that watched the live stream, which you can watch on the live streams at our YouTube page at youtube.com slash sock machine as we kick it over to our friends from the 108 and you can check out their show started at 8 o'clock p.m. Central Time at youtube.com slash from the 108. But for those that are listening to the podcast feed or the video recording later, thank you for listening and watching. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at Socks Machine. You can follow me on Twitter at Socks Machine underscore Josh. If this is the first time watching a video from us, Please subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Socks Machine. And every audio from Socks Machine Live is uploaded into our podcast feed, which you can subscribe to the Socks Machine podcast wherever you listen to podcasts such as Spotify and Apple Music. Jim mentioned it earlier in the show, but if you enjoy your work and you want more, you can get more by becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash Socks Machine. 
where our Patreon supporters get exclusive content like the P.O. Sox mailbag from Jim, which he answers White Sox fans' questions or Patreon supporter questions. They also get ad-free versions of both the podcast and the website. And when we have new Sox Machine swag, they're the first ones to receive it from the Sox Machine store. Monthly plans start at $2, or you can save with an annual subscription. Again, sign up at patreon.com slash Machine. Sox Machine Live is a production of SoxMachine.com. You're on for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for watching and listening. The headlines remind us daily. The world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com